Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Hey, this is O'Teal. If you're liking what you're hearing, head on over to patreon.com forward slash comes a time pod and get your bus pass for an extra episode every week. Welcome back to another episode of Comes a Time. I'm Mike. I'm O'Teal. We had the great Eric Krasno on. What a fun, fun conversation we had. Yeah, we did. He's amazing. He, uh, he has a podcast here on Osiris and, uh, it was so nice to get to chat with him for, I know you've known him for ever and ever, you know, um, such a smart dude, such a great, like real deep thinker, you know, I like him quite a bit. Yeah. The pandemic has, uh, definitely given us all some different perspectives on life and, uh, the way his life has turned since it happens. <laughs> really really cool i think uh everybody will get a lot out of it it uh it shows you how things can go you know if you embrace the change and if uh some timing is on your side yeah i mean i used to stand there and watch him play you know and just be mesmerized by his guitar playing and it just to get to chat with him is really awesome so thank you eric for joining us and thanks listeners um, you guys are the best. You're the reason why we do this. Uh, you can find us, if you want more, at Patreon. Each week, O'Teal and I do a uh, bonus episode, patreon.com slash comesatimepod. And like Eric, uh, we have, we're part of the Osiris Network, which is uh, tons of amazing music and culture podcasts. So head to osirispod.com and check all those out. Uh, enjoy this episode. Thank you, Eric, for joining us. And uh We'll catch you guys next week. Peace. What's up, Kraz? Good to see you, brother. Good to see you, man. It's uh it's funny with like how much dead time there is now. Or not even dead time, it's like uh I, non non social time. Like I look forward so much to doing things like this because it's like, you know, just me playing my guitar or you know hanging with the baby, which I love. But uh, hanging out with with friends, especially music friends, right now is is nice. So I appreciate you uh, inviting me on. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Happy to have you on. Uh, we hung we hung one time a thousand years ago at a. Toad's Place in New Haven. Um, oh yeah, the legendary Toad's Place, which uh, yep. I I was freshly writing for Relics Magazine, and I kind of would like guerrilla interview everyone. Like I would just like 
anybody, any show I could go to, I yep. would just hop into the green room and be like, Hey, I'm here with relics. And uh, you know, like just start yeah. asking questions and, and hanging out. And I think I did that. So I apologize. <laughs> I no, I probably just, welcomed. I was probably like, come on in, dude. You were, man. I you mean, were. I hope I was, that's, that's usually my vibe. Uh, you totally yeah, Toast were. Place had, had, we actually had some good shows in that place. It's funny how sometimes you hit that right, like, combination of, like, dingy and, like, vibey. Like, the Wetlands was another one. Absolutely. Um, yep. But, but Toad's Place, I feel like we had good gigs in there. It's like, I, and you, I never can equate exactly why, because I don't think the sound was great. And I remember it had this weird, for a while, in the later years, it had a fence. Do you remember the fence? <laughs> oh, I re- of course I re- Yeah. So, yeah. Otila, did you oh, ever yeah. play there? Did you ever That's play fun. Toad's Place? When you said oh, the they fence, definitely it brought it all there. back. Yeah. Yeah. It had like in the right down the middle of the. So if you're on stage and you're looking straight at the soundboard, which on the other side is the stairs down to the green room, a net would drop on 21 and over shows. Yeah. So 21 plus was on one side of the net and 18 to 21 or whatever under 21 was on the other side of the net. And the goal as a kid was to like, we looked at that net like, how do we get under the net or how do we get around the yeah, net? You yeah. know what I mean? And uh, we made our way. <laughs> I, I kind of <laughs> remember having like an existential dilemma on where to put my mom. I was like, should mom go? Because behind the fence is like a horrible way to watch a show. But in front of the fence is dangerous in New Haven because it's like all college kids being like, woo. You know, getting hammered. I was like, uh, you know, maybe we find that. Maybe we put mom on side of the stage or something. <laughs> I don't know, but yeah, can't remember what actually happened in the end. I am so happy I had that place growing up because, yeah. I mean, and it was such a cool. My dad saw the Who there after they played the Coliseum. Everybody what? but Daltrey, everybody but Daltrey showed up there and went wow. on with like whatever local band was playing. Crazy. Um, the Stones, Dylan. I mean, I saw a, they, they really they all yeah. played Toad's Place. Yep. If I you do remember a- uh, posters on the wall that had like a bunch of legendary names, but I wasn't sure how like real the that oh it was. was. Yeah, the yeah. Talking Heads wow. would play. The Stones did like in between Boston and New York. I think they did a stop there. Crazy. Um, it was just so neat because you never know. I saw Beck there in the early days. Jane's Addiction, wow. like, and and then. I mean, when you yeah. there was that era, when the when the Evans brothers were on, we talked a lot about like that era, that first Bonnaroo, that early festival yeah. era. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When like I would be able to go down to Toads and see you guys one night, Soul Live the next, uh, Schofield the next. Like, I mean, it was right. just such a like a golden age. Of, yeah, of that was shows. A, that was a great time. I had Schofield on on my podcast. And we got really deep into how, um, you know, me growing up, there was the eras of like the late 60s, early 70s of like, oh, I wish I lived then. And uh, for him growing up then, he was like, I wish I was in like the 50s, like the Miles Coltrane. I mean, I kind of like there's many eras for me that I'm like, oh, New York in the 50s, San Francisco in the 70s. but, you know, I think what's happened during quarantine is like, I'm not going to compare like our scene really to those, but I will say that I've had such incredible experiences. And I think actually having you, Oteal, on my podcast brought a lot of that back of like, 
just there's just been there's been a lot and it's been a time to think about it and reflect on it and kind of like you know I think that the appreciation coming out of this is going to be huge uh for playing again and kind of appreciating just like the my friends and the scene that I'm a part of and uh so yeah, it's 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 interesting to kind of look at it that way though. Cuz and then the other thing we discovered is that, you know, Schofield played with Soul Live a lot in those early days and yeah. he is the exact when we did the interview or I I forget exactly how we figured it out, but Marcus King is the age I was when Schofield was playing with me and I'm Schofield's age now. You know what I mean? Oh, Which is wow. like, so it's this crazy parallel because I had them on right around each other and it blew my mind that I'm like, I'm Schofield's age. Because we were like, whoa, that's a, he's, that's an old dude. Which so I've started. Um, and, but anyway, it's, it's a trip to, I feel very fortunate, man, to be a part of a lot of the things and be around a lot of the people that I, I've been around, you know, in the past 20 years. It's pretty crazy. It's, I've kind of found that through other people's eyes, you right. know, and I'll be in the old guy like twice over now. <laughs> um, but, you know, when someone says, man, my first concert was Almond Brothers, you know, and I'm thinking it's like back in the day and they were like, it was with you. And I'm like, oh, like yeah. I'm their only experience live of the Almond yeah. Brothers, you know, it's like, it's mine. Wow. Yeah. And you switch, you switch, yeah. like it's, it's funny, but I, I don't ever put myself in the category of like Wayne Shorter or yeah, my hero. I mean, you know what I, I mean? Is, I, and I never will, you know, but like, uh, yeah. but, but other Schofield, people, yeah. Schofield was like, well, I saw Hendrix. He saw Hendrix live, I think at Central Park and he like uh. quit. <laughs> he was like, I quit. <laughs> of course he came back but he was also like it kind of had it was like a realizing moment that i'm like not a rock star i'm this you know i'm something yeah. else yeah which i think is something that's really important i've been talking about that lately um like i think in the internet age there's so much comparison and comp competition um when people really need to i mean I have to train myself to just take inspiration from like watching like a 12 year old rip, you know what I mean? On YouTube rather than be like, I quit, you know? Cause like, and, but I think for younger people, it's hard, man. It's like you see these perfect people on Instagram because they paint this perfect picture and like people's lives now are a lot of it is social, social media, especially with quarantine. But, um, yeah, that's like it's like a fine line between like using these amazing other people as inspiration versus like competition. Yeah, you know? and you know it's it's funny like I, speaking of like even Schofield, like I found him through Agogo, the album with MMW, which is yeah. I mean, in my opinion, it's up there with like some of the greatest albums of all time. I mean, Me I really too. do. I, love, I think it's I like, a, I put it in with like kind of blue in a way, like yeah. it's just his. And, you know, then to be able to now dive into all of the Schofields that he was is right. an exact, you know, testament to what you're saying that like, we're able to quarantine and through this podcast and through chatting with O'Teal and some other friends, like I clocked like 
a lot of hours on Spotify <laughs> in 2020, yeah. just like walking and listening and getting deeper and deeper into like Alan Toussaint and Little Feet. And that would bring me to, you know, Professor Longhair and all these other things, like stuff that I've never, and it all circles back to somehow that guy played with this guy who played with Schofield, who played with, you know, and it's, it's right. great. Like you said, we're all like kind of hands on the clock at this point now, you know, and, and yeah, fans yeah. and musicians. <laughs> right, right. I was talking to somebody the other day. And I was talking about how I kind of like discovered Dylan later, you know, it was like, a, I, every, I mean, everyone knows Bob Dylan, but to like kind of discuss, I feel like there's like timing in your life where you need a certain music, you know, and I feel like I stumble, like I always knew Dylan, but I was always like, uh, not my favorite singer, not my favorite player. But as I got to appreciate writing and, and lyrics like more and more, which I feel like is something that's just been evolving my whole life. Um, I discovered him and went deep and all of a sudden was like, oh my, I really understood the genius, but it was right when I needed it. Um, and I forget where I was going with that actually, but, uh, <laughs> but it's, there's, but I feel like there's timing for all these different things to happen um, for me. And like the Grateful Dead music was huge, like in that way where I discovered it before I was really a musician. And then it came, I think Otila and I talked about last time we spoke, it kind of came back around right when I needed it. You know what I mean? But I think the yeah. first time I discovered the Grateful Dead, it also was a gateway, like you're saying to like, um, so many other music because they, it, as great of, of writers as they became, their early years, they were playing all this old blues music and tradition. They were kind of like, like, here's the best of like American culture. You know, here's blues, yeah. here's like early rock and roll, here's like country, like the best sides of country, in my opinion. Um, but uh, but I, I know what I was trying to say in the beginning is that someone was like, oh, yeah, long, all along the watchtower, Dave Matthews. And I was like, <laughs> <laughs> but I'm trying not to be that guy anymore that gets mad because yeah. I probably was like, you know, oh, Love Light, Grateful Dead, you know, right. yeah. um, and then discovering it was Bobby Blueland. But like that's that's an interesting piece, too, is like a lot of music whether we like it or not is discovered like through these modern versions of these songs, but it actually leads to, I mean, soul live did that soul live played in front of like this jam band crowd who didn't know that when we started the band, it was like Grant green and Lonnie Smith and all these like organ bands. And I remember back in the day we used to send out these, remember the newsletters? I'm sure ARU did it. The little cards that had all your dates on it. You're like your, oh, yeah. your tour dates. Every time we'd pick albums and we would put them on the other side. So you could see like Yusef wow. Latif or like Grant Green or whatever. And we really did find that like people would come to our shows and be like, oh, I discovered Lou Donaldson or I discovered, you know, uh, what, whoever, you know, uh, Melvin Sparks. So I, but I, so I think like, you know, in a perfect world, you know, these different generations help people discover, you know, the ones before them. It's for the curious, you know, I mean, all the, yeah, yeah. I guess life itself is really for the curious, you know, a fan said to me recently, um, they said, you know, I don't think you discovered the Grateful Dead later. I think the Grateful Dead got, you came to you when you needed it. And right. I was like, wow. Right. Right. That's deep and also precisely true, you know. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It's uh, 
it's really been so i always you know of course i always see something mystical in the timing of things you know why why things happen for you right when you need it you right. know is that pre-programmed or is that like a gift or is is both a gift like absolutely absolutely <laughs> oh till you yeah. kind of had the same experience that that eric did though with dylan right like you never really were like early on were you listening to much dylan Mm-mm. no uh i was more in a joni mitchell you know right. and um yeah but like eric like when you start writing then you start appreciating like it's funny when you said that about dylan you're like not my favorite singer not my favorite guitar player i was like <laughs> actually he's neither i mean he's right. fine at both and actually in one sense like the colonel bruce sense i think about it, he's great at both right right but that's not the thing the thing is this mind this writing but i i also feel like in a weird way the his presentation is almost like so you listen to the words in yeah. a weird way mm -hmm. like you wouldn't want to hear well i know actually all his covers are great too he's one of those guys that the covers are great too but like certain songs it's like the way he delivers them too I actually have grown to like his voice. I think it was like in the beginning, I just wanted to hear, you know, Stevie Wonder sing Blowing in the Wind, but, <laughs> which is also incredible. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, it's interesting. I saw this this movie the other night called uh, A Night in Miami, which I, have you guys seen that by any chance and or heard about it? Anyway, it's about how Sam, it's like kind of a, a twist on the night that Sam Cooke uh, Muhammad Ali and Malcolm X and Jim Brown get together. And supposedly it's the night that Cassius Clay becomes Muhammad Ali. And there's this conversation about with, between Malcolm X and Sam Cooke about Sam, you need to make songs that, that uplift, uplift our people. You know, sure. and say he starts playing Sam Cooke's records and they're all like, you send me and like all his love songs, like uh, Cupid. And uh, he plays him blowing in the wind by Bob Dylan and he's like why does it take this white guy to make the most poignant song about our people mm, um, wow. and I just thought that was like kind of an amazing moment wow. and supposedly he then wrote change is gonna come yeah. wow which no was kidding. like his moment of like Sam Cooke who you know was hugely respected you yeah. know in the black community but it was like Malcolm X that was like you have the voice to make change why aren't you doing that? You know, and and then he puts on that record. I thought Amazing. that was kind of kind of crazy. That's but super. Anyway, cool. It's a good movie. <laughs> Love to check that out. I listened yeah. to too much. Like I listened to Dylan too young to not really understand the social constructs that he was talking about and the characters in the songs. I didn't realize were real people until later on when I started to look at you know history. You know, like right. Medgar Evers, I didn't think was a, like, I didn't know that was a real person growing up right. 10, 11, right. 12 years old. And I'm listening to this like double-sided tape of Dylan, you know what I mean? Yeah. And it's, and yeah. the, but then I get to go back and be like, oh, the music that I listened to was teaching me about history. Like lucky right. me that I like smart music, you know what right. I mean? And, and it, it does find you sometimes the same song, like the same book or like, you know, you go back to it at a later point in your life. And it's like looking at a magic eye puzzle from like another angle. 
and seeing Absolutely. something. Absolutely. I mean, that's when what's I first, so great about art. When I first discovered the Grateful Dead, I really think it was more about, I mean, first of all, my brother was into it and I was like, my brother and his friends were all there was. It was like, they're the coolest people on earth, you know? And they would bring me, I mean, I was very fortunate, you know, and, and O'Teal can relate to this, of having a, an older brother that was, you know, going to show me what he knew, you know what I mean? And he brought me to shows and stuff, but it was so much about the community. I didn't know about, and I did love the music genuinely, but I didn't, again, it's kind of like, like you said, I, I wasn't quite ready to understand what it all was, you know, especially lyrically and how, and how hard it is to like do what Robert Hunter did. You know what I mean? I mean, and Barlow, but how you like, like painting this beautiful picture and, uh, and like this kind of vibe and like this weird, like place that you go to, uh, as a songwriter is like an amazing gift, you know, but that's also musical and fun to sing and, you know, yeah. That combination, uh, I mean, it's, I'm going to learn from that forever. Yeah, I look at that just like uh, amazing musicians. Like I, I don't even. It's like you're never going to be. That's, that's as much of a, a gifted, you know. Like Robert Hunter is just like Miles, but totally. But the pen, you know, like yeah. every once in a while, you're fortunate just to be alive when that happens. Yeah, <laughs> you know, to you're coincide right, with that. And uh, right. I just, Joni Mitchell is like that, man. I saw a thing on her and they read a poem that she had written when she was like 16 years old. And it's like, oh my God. It's always been there. Right. It's yeah. so right. deep, dude. And just like, so profound. It's like, wow, she just is a rare human. Yeah, very rare. You know, like. you know, I And always, the way she plays and the way that she like, expresses is unlike anyone else that's funny because like that of the ability for someone like that it's it's not just skill it's like this certain like fearlessness to develop something that's unlike anything else you know a vision too to actually even be able to see that yeah to conceptualize and you know people thought she was insane that you know it's like Jimi hendrix everyone thought he was completely no one liked hendrix yeah, I've been on a deep dive into Hendrix. I mean, no one, no one liked Hendrix. He was, he would like the black community thought his stuff was too whacked out. They were like, "Where's the funk?" You know. And then the white community was like, "Who is this guy?" Like, um, I mean, eventually, like, kind of in the West Village, he he got embraced, but he kind of had to fully form, take himself out of his to world 80. to London. Yeah. yeah, and then people were like, "Oh my God, he's a genius!" And within months, he was like a superstar. But it's so funny how like in that development stage, most people think if you're creating something on a level that those people did, like you get knocked down over and over and over. Yeah. People don't realize about about Martin Luther King. Can you guess what his approval rating was back then? I mean, when it, when he was 25%, he was not, Hated they had, they had approval more. ratings back then. <laughs> really? Well, I mean, he was hated. Yeah. He was hated much more than he was oh, liked. Sure. Like right, there's really twenty five percent of people like wow. yeah, you know. Right. But now it's like there's a it, I see in the black community there's a huge James Baldwin resur- resurgence and right the same way with him. I heard Cornell West talk about it. Like he would you know 
people were he was not popular like back then right. you know so it, right. it just goes to show you like history will prove <laughs> what was the deepest and what was you know you have to yeah, wait yeah well i think the people the that become these legends it's it's like these obviously these genius ideas but like this perseverance to get like pummeled along the way and still you know still do your art the way you want to do it it's like cuz i feel like there's a lot of people with great ideas and a lot of people with perseverance <laughs> but it's like to have both and really sustain whatever comes at you um until you kind of can fully envision your your thing i mean it's hard it's it's a, it's rare my to have biggest both. My biggest yeah. hero with that is uh, Sun Ra because he oh, never gosh, yeah. got the money. He never yeah. got it. Never let up. Like, right. and he had, you know, John Gilmore. Miles tried to steal him, and Count Basie tried to steal. Like, you know, everybody yeah. wanted yeah. this guy, and he followed Sun Ra in poverty and just pure art. Just you know, went, yeah. For, 35 something you know more years just yeah. like I, I and marshall's still doing it we're I, weren't we together what were we to get what was the night it was i'm thinking because it was brooklyn bowl yeah marshall yeah. allen played brooklyn bowl i don't think I, I it was a creative uh i i remember what it was i played with billy martin and mark rebo and uh marshall was there and so marshall's 98 right right Crazy. He sits there. Now you know me. I don't like going on the road. He tells yeah. me he's about to start a seven week tour of Europe. <laughs> so you can imagine. Wow. It's not I like hate. Den Company's going to tour Europe or even right. Soul Live would tour Europe. It's yeah. like Sun Ron yeah. Orchestra. Yeah. Hard. Just wow. so hard. Like a long tour that would yeah. just kill me. And he's oh, 98. Man. I was just like, he just is the music just at made this point. of other stuff. Right, right. That's yeah, I look at George Porter sometimes, and I'm like, yeah. man, I wish <laughs> I had the energy of that man, you know, in his 70s. Just and, and he is happy as a clam, dude. He is up there playing. He has more fun than anyone I know. I just love that guy so much. It's just <laughs> so... Yeah. He's just... that that I'm so inspired by that. And I really hope that I continue to get that same joy from music man like forever <laughs> or travel amazing. i mean because yeah. i think he likes the travel even he yeah. likes the i mean i know he gets tired of whatever but i mean he keeps a pace that i can't have no desire to keep whatsoever yeah i make sure that no complaining comes out of my mouth <laughs> i'll show up with like three flights and overnight and no sleep and I'll see George and I want to be like, Oh, I'm about to die. But I know he's like, Oh, come on. Like, I don't even want to hear what his schedule is like. You know, I know he's got like a gig tomorrow in California, the next day in Maine. And then the next, you know, I, I don't just, even want to start. That's just another one of his superpowers. Like I don't even mind complaining. <laughs> you know, like, you know, some of these old blues guys or old, uh, any, kind of music really like some of them can just drink and do blow in their 80s and stuff you're like yeah. what like yeah. <laughs> you know how is that yeah. but they're just made differently like george is yeah. just that's one of his superpowers is being happy with the roughest schedule 
So I'll yeah. just go ahead and complain, but he'll pick me up out of it because he'll make me yeah. laugh. And then I'll be like, yeah, I'm a puss, you know, whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Man, but I, I love that. I love his uh, – every time I play with him. And it's like he's never had an off night. I'm like, you know, he's just never had an off night. He's always in a great mood and can, like, lead the band. I've seen him lead bands. He didn't know half the guys on stage and just just take hold. And uh, But, yeah, he's one of the guys I, I look to as a – as like a beacon of hope for myself, I'm like if I can if I can sustain uh, and have fun have fun with this when I'm in my 70s, I, I won. Oh, for <laughs> sure, for sure. Taj Mahal was like that for me. I remember we it was a horde, I think, or something. And he did a side stage, and I went and played with him, and I didn't know any of the tunes. Man, he just led me through it while singing oh, yeah. and playing. And cueing some other people, yeah. Um, and I, it was just a fine gig. He was like, "Great, man, yeah. <laughs> I like, dude!" I actually did a gig with Taj Mahal, and I was the MD for the band. We had all these different artists, and generally, I would like rehearse the band and communicate with the artist and kind of like lead the band. When he came on, he didn't give. He was like, he was like, "All right, like he just and it wasn't even like a spoken. First of all, he had his own language, but we didn't even need to know it. You know what I mean? He just knew how to communicate with us. You know, like that was that's some old school shit. Like a lot of those guys, I mean, Chuck Berry never had the same band. It was like he just knew how to lead people through it. And the, the musicians had to have a sense for what's going on. But um, Taj led us through the rehearsal like it was the gig. You know what I mean? It yeah. was like, all right, and we only did one time and we had like an hour and a half set for his rehearsal. He just like did everything one time without even talking about it. Just <laughs> would do an intro one, you know, and then we'd be in, he might have one comment after, but we wouldn't do it again. It was one <laughs> time. And then we did the show and everyone else would be like rehearsal, like 10 times through the thing. He was like, no, no, no. This is how we do it. Um, I didn't even I get didn't a rehearsal. Know. I think he, yeah, it was I think they like, were planning we on doing it without bass. He was like, we can still do it. They're like, hey, O'Teal, come on. I just literally hopped up on stage. And he just like, yeah. I did a gig with Lonnie school. Smith once, man. And I was so nervous. And I never could get in touch with him before the gig. It was a jazz fest. At, you know, it was like, I don't even, it was like a long time ago. So I, I don't even know if I had his number. Or I don't, I can't remember exactly what the lead up was. But I just went ahead and like learned like his, like a bunch of tunes. I learned like his old tunes. He had a new record. I learned that. I show up and I, I kind of wrote down my notes and had a little set list. And I was like, oh, Mr. Smith, sir. Uh, you know, here's here's what I learned. And he like kind of looked at it, looked at me and just kind of laughed at me basically. <laughs> and was like, he was like, we'll see how you do, young young man. You know, <laughs> we'll see how you do. And then we get on stage and he had this ability. It was Donald Harrison Ooh. and Derek Phillips on drums. Yeah. Uh, and it was a tight, no one knew that, what we were going to do. And the, it was a tight show. He just had this ability. It was like almost like he was controlling me you know like van ventriloquism like we were saying earlier like i was like a puppet and it was like he could just control what i was doing i swear it was really strange and he just knew how to cue us and 
had the ability to kind of, and every song he kind of would play this like beautiful, slowed down kind of version of what we were about to do. So we could clearly hear uh, what we're, what was going to happen, but it was beautiful. Like you would, you would think that was part of the show. I mean, it was. But for us, it was like, okay, A minor, all right, C sharp, okay, then and then he'd play this nice, beautiful thing, and then he'd be like, one, two, three, four, five, seven, ah, and we'd all just know what to do. It was insane. I, ever since, I've been like, what happened? Like, how did that happen? Um, but like I said, like guys like that, it's like, you know, they weren't emailing each other MP3s, you know what I mean? It was like, you just had to, you know, you just had to know it was up, and rehearsals were... You know, I'm sure far, but you know, you know, few and far between. I have one of those where I, w- I was supposed to play with Bernard Purdy, and uh, he never sent me any music, you know. So I just emailed Jazz Fest, which I could, you know, yeah. we could sit here and talk about Jazz Fest. Oh, uh, yeah, for two Please hours, do. you know, I, that's just the best for me. But uh, so I called him or emailed him, whatever, said, Hey, man, um, you got any music? So he sends me 25 songs, right? So I'm like, cool. I just chart them out. You know, I learn it best I can. And I got 13 other sets to do. You know, we yeah. get there. We didn't do one song. <laughs> Classic. We ended up doing a bunch of Leo Nocitelli's tunes, which is right. cool because I knew those already. Right, right. And I was like, well, oh, that's, right. <laughs> just, that's the thing, great thing about Jazz Fest is you kind of build your repertoire over like by year seven, there's enough repeats that you can kind of like go anywhere, you know? Uh, yeah, that's funny. I did a, a gig with the Funky Meters. You know, Art Neville, Russell Batiste, uh, and George. And a similar thing where, I mean, that was kind of my thing is I would make a list of songs. This is pre, like, everything's on my phone. And uh, Ian couldn't make the gig. It's the beginning of Dumpster Funk. And it was like right when they started gigging and he couldn't do funky meters. And uh, the manager sent me like 60 songs. And I had that list like printed out. And it was the great, honestly, the one of the probably like the greatest education of my life was learning the Leo Nocitelli guitar parts for sixty songs. It was like so, no matter what, that was the most valuable few days. And it was only a few days. I like didn't sleep. I remember my friend gave me a ride, and I sat in the back with like a little speaker and like learned on the way to the gig. It was in New Jersey. And we get there, and I show the list, and I'm nervous, like, to talk to Art Neville. I'd met him a couple times, but this, you know, and he kind of, I, I bring him the list, and I show it to him. And I remember he, like, hits it with his finger, and he goes, now I know exactly what not to play. Oh. <laughs> <Nice>. <laughs> Which was, like, obviously hilarious, and everyone else starts laughing. Russell's laughing. And, uh... <laughs> Of course, we did play some of those tunes, but it was yeah. like a mixture of all different things, and it ended up being great. But uh, that was the beginning of a, a pretty fun friendship with the with him and the other guys. I'm, you know, but that yeah, was I just best I, practice for uh, for Den Company because people like right. learn those tunes. I, I was like, man, after a few years of jazz fest. I'll just like twenty five at a time. Let's knock them down. You know? Yeah, right. That was good. But, See, that was the training. You know, that was the training. It's good. It, you I also did that. like a good association, O'Teal, Right? Like you'd be like, "What's going on?" Is you know, you can like eyes of the world. Like you could kind of like bring in 
other like what you paralleled like you kind of paired up oh, yeah, tunes I mean, to other tunes and that's such a smart way of doing it i always yeah. do that to a certain extent if possible but i just it's funny because I, I i know eric you've known me when i was on the before stage before i was used to learning so many songs right. and i kind of laugh now at guys that are just coming into it because they're like man it's a lot of songs to learn or if they work with somebody in that sphere and they realize how much they're going to be learning new songs like every night oh hey let's do this tonight we'll learn it sound check yeah. you know and i just now i totally embrace it and a lot for that reason you said too eric like all the tunes that i learned that never do that was not wasted time that's the most right. valuable time and it was fun yeah yeah i mean remember when we were kids and we were just play along with the radio or play along with your albums and learn the tunes. Yeah. I yeah. Mean, that's what got me here. That's what that got part. me started. But it's funny with the dead though, with the dead, it's like, uh, it's like AP calculus because you got to know like, okay, what was the last version that was played? And then in the seventies, they did it this way. Who's on drums. Cause I don't know if he plays it that way. And like, cause when I did fill in friends, they 60 songs again, uh, or maybe more to do a four night or five night run at the Capitol Theater. I had never played, you know, mo most of it. Luckily, I'd grown up on the dead, but uh, I learned the record versions and then <laughs> old versions. Because, like, for me, I, I grew up on the 70s dead. Like uh -huh. late 77 was my year. And, but I liked six, I mean, all, anything through 80, I don't know for some, and now I've appreciated the later stuff, but that's just what I listened to, you know? Sure, so sure. I pulled up, oh man, all my favorite versions of the songs we're going to play and the studio versions, learn those. I get there and they're like, what the hell are you doing? You know? And they're like, <laughs> and then I realized I should be listening to Phil and Friends and Further and in those versions and i'm like oh no i remember we played help on the way slipknot i actually talked to russo about this the other day and like i learned the version from like the great american music hall like thing or whatever and uh, uh yeah and the problem is if you play that version and someone else is playing the reason version it's like the worst calamity that, <laughs> of music that could ever happen and i remember like warren is playing like the other version and I'm playing like a, like a whole step away from him. And it's like, sounds like the world is ending, but, uh, after <laughs> All I the learned versions my lesson. Of help slipper like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. <sighs> Brutal. And then you look out in the crowd and we're all just eyes closed twirling. We yeah. love it. You're the only one that's here. <laughs> I got that. another good story from that first run is that I was glued to my iPad. Cause I had figured <clears> out, okay, I can get all of these written out and into my iPad. Had like the foot pedal and the whole thing. And don't get me wrong, I'm still like all about the iPad. But I learned my lesson, uh, not like totally internalizing a lot of the stuff. He he asked me to sing Alabama Getaway, and I that's and also that era that song. I mean, I like that song, but. I'd never sang it. I, the lyrics are really, are really fast and kind yeah. of in high key for me. So I'm like nervous as hell. I'm like trying to like learn it and I'm glued to the lyrics on my iPad and trying to play. And I didn't turn the airplane mode off. And my keyboard player at the time from my band FaceTimes me <laughs> while we're on stage. 
<laughs> and I'm trying to read the lyrics, and he's and it, and I just didn't know what to do, so I just click, click, just pressed the iPad. It turns on. He's like, "Yo, bro, I'm hanging out. What's going on?" I'm like, "Shut up!" <laughs> and I had to turn it off and like try to figure out where I was. And so yeah. Anyway. Modern technology is amazing for this stuff, but you can't rely on it, that's for sure. Well, sometimes, I mean, boy, I don't know what would happen with Dead & Company without our, if our teleprompters went out. It'd right. be bad news, dude. I mean, yeah. I'm sure they have everything, like, backed up twice. Right, I'm, right. I'm going on a prayer, man, because if my iPad just fritzes out or something, like... I could play it all, yeah. but I cannot remember all those lyrics. You know what's good about it being yeah. a dead show? You could go, now it's your turn, and just turn the microphone to the crowd and let everybody right. else sing. Right. Well, that's partly why I was so nervous, because every single person in that entire theater knew the lyrics better than me. I, <laughs> The guy yeah. singing it is the guy who knows the lyrics least in the, out of the 5,000 people in that, <laughs> in that room or whatever. Well, it's so funny, like this, like for, well, every story that you guys are telling, and it's like the guys, like these elders that kind of look at you and go like, yeah, take your list and, you know, put it in your pocket. We're just going to play. And all of the, the, the dead relationship fans and the, and the band, it's like we all seem to just get off on that perfectly imperfect. It's going to happen the way it's going to happen tonight, and it's going to be okay. Right. We'll still be back tomorrow. And that's kind of the yeah. cool thing that as, a, as someone in the crowd, and then knowing that the band is kind of feeling the same anxiety, but excitement that, you know, you listen into the 77 that you're perfect estimated. Yeah. Isn't necessarily the right homework to do for, you know, it, it's so amazing. <laughs> That's what makes our, this scene so fantastic, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, that was the thing at those shows too, was like, um, and, and, the Capitol theater runs were kind of a special thing with Phil. Like yeah. it, there would be a, mostly the same people. And by day three, you'd realize, wait, the first 10 rows are like all the same people. And they also not, they're not as disconnected. Like you go see like a pop show and like, no one knows who the guitar player is or whatever. And it's the same show every night and you leave. And these people are like part of the experience and they're like cheering me on. They know this is my first Run! They're like, you can do it, Kraz. Like tomorrow <laughs> night's gonna be better. Hell yeah, you know? man! <laughs> totally. Like, Don't worry, night three, you're really gonna get it's comfortable. <laughs> you know? I'm like, wow, these people like really know me. <laughs> well, it's, I, I must have mentioned it on the podcast before, but like at Fare Thee Well, like I'm I'm coming off like however many like two decades of following Fish and Trey's my guy, and I'm so proud of him, and I'm like nervous for him, like a dad at like the Little League World Series. Yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? And like my kids pitching and you see like some of these like grizzled old deadheads that are like, we, I, this, this Trey Anastasio guy, let's see if what he can really do. Like, it's probably going to suck, but what, a, you know? And it's like, yeah. I'm just quietly like, come on, Trey, show him what you got. Show him what, you <laughs> yeah, know? And it's just yeah. so funny to like, because like, yeah, like Jerry is the beacon and like, you yeah. know, like there's just so many things that could go wrong, but we love all of them. But you're right. right. Like we're hanging right. on every note. But even if it does trip up, like I've I've really yeah. early on made peace with the fact that like I'm paying to watch my favorite band practice. Right. You know right. what I mean? Like that's right. what seems fun to me. I've been to concerts where it's like we're going to mix it up a little bit and that means they're not going track by track right. of their new album. I love Wilco. 
Wilco's a phenomenal band to see live, but they did one tour when they released the album Star Wars and they played the whole album track by track by track by track. And when then, then when that was over, they kind of played some of the other tunes. And I didn't yeah. love that tour as much as some of their other stuff because I just right, like right. it to be, you know. So. Was it well, like a wanted, concept I, that, album? It wasn't a concept album in the sense of like it had to, it didn't have to for sure. Yeah. But I just think it was something, like for them, that's something different. So right, they only right. did it for that tour. And then when I saw them on their new album, I was like, God, I hope they don't do the whole album start to finish. And luckily they didn't. <laughs> right. But right, right. Yeah. Well, I think that's like, you know, deadheads want to be a part of the experience. And part and part of that is you win some, you lose some. And, yeah. you know, having uh, and it's it's been interesting um being in like as far as my experience with it because i did see a lot of dead i did see a lot of jerry shows and and, i mean dead shows with jerry um but then like watching it splinter and and change and grow in a weird way in terms of its fan base but also to include all these other great musicians like watching O'Teal play with dead company was one of the coolest experiences of my life it was like somebody who i've respected so much um, and that I've, I've looked up to and learned from, and then this other like world that, and just watching them like come together and the way that you did it, it's just, I, it also made me realize that I can't imagine anyone else doing it. You know what I mean? Like when I actually saw it, I was like, I couldn't, couldn't imagine That's like weird. mayor. It took me a second. I was like, okay, how is this going to fit? When you yeah. got the gig, I just knew it also was timing again. It comes back to timing because That's your timing I, with like the, also with your time with Allen Brothers, so many different things. And you and I had a long talk about it on that drive to Bonnaroo. I remember. Yeah. And and because uh, I had just started playing with Phil like then too, I think. And so I was. It was just perfect. It's like it was one of those things that just the timing and and the, your approach to it. I guess um, it helped me that I watched it happen. Uh, with Jimmy too, right? You know, because he played that one summer with Almond Brothers, and you know a lot of Dickie Betts fans were like, you know, would stand in front of Jimmy and then turn their backs to him and face the lawn. You know, wow. <laughs> it was real brutal stuff. And so after that summer, he's like, "Hey man, I got a call from Phil, and you know, I'm gonna." <laughs> This is brutal. Like I love you. He he was so he felt so bad. He's like, "Well, I got my dream gig, and I gotta walk away because it's just too brutal." And I got this other offer, you know. But watching how that gig, I felt really transformed his playing in a way that even playing with the Colonel hadn't. Right. It put these. You know, whenever we have limitations put on us, we find a way over around under whatever and in that we find this like pot of gold in a way yeah and i just was it revealed something in jimmy's plan that i don't even think playing with the colonel revealed and so then i started looking at it differently and that's when i asked kirk west i was like okay i want to get this because jimmy was super excited about he would text me and call me and be like man this tune you know blues for allah or you know or the 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 record blues for allah you know there was a bunch of stuff on there he was really excited about but i still didn't get it yet kirk was gave me dick's pics and all that stuff but you just have to like learn the music and then when you learn the tune i'll tell you a great moment that happened for me and John was when we played this free show at the Fillmore 
in San Francisco and all these like old school deadheads came out. Like I'm right. pretty sure the guest list was most of the venue, <laughs> you know, right. Right. But there, it was free and you just had to get in first and man to see John talked about in an interview, like some old grizzled deadhead that made his way out of the forest with a tear coming down his cheek. It was just like, it was deep, man. It was really yeah. deep. And then I, you go in the dressing room. I had been in the dressing room a bunch of times, but then you see the picture of Bob. Bob looks like he's 16. Right. And it just hit me for the first time because I, I'm now I've been spending a lot of time with these guys and I know them as the age they are now. And then I look at the picture after having life experience, just like, it was yeah. crazy. What a, crazy night that was you know but you know you're part picture. of that lineage now yeah. too. You know? i know that picture you're talking about i saw it when i was there the last time and it was it hits you it's like wow um yeah and also what happened all the stuff that happened in that room and man yeah, yeah i remember playing in there with uh the peacemakers and with aru yeah. uh yeah. we are you open for hornsby there you know and i've been going through and actually that night was the first time that bob and phil played together since jerry died oh, another wow. crazy story i have phil um came out and they asked him to sit in. i think bob was already gonna sit in and he was like well i don't have a bass i had just gotten all these basses from modulus so i had four of them on the road with me and i knew yeah. he played modulus i still don't know that much about them at all and i was like hey tell phil i've got four of them and so he walks in, i was like take your pick dude you know like yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like a little showroom and i have a picture of, from that night he played my bass that night it was the first time him and wow. bob played together since jerry died Jeez. it's a trip it was a trip wow, man, man. It's funny, yeah. like talking about this now with you, Eric. Now we're on like the other side of that, you know. Like we're in the family. Yeah, you know, it's such a crazy thing be being on both sides of it. You know. Oh yeah, you know it's, um, yeah, but it's it's been interesting. Like like you said, there's all these people now that are such great musicians that have you know been a part of it, and like you said, it's it's transformed they're playing and they're being, I think, you know what I mean? Like, I, I actually remember that I didn't know that there was a specific era of Phil called the Q, which is the quintet. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. It's yeah. Warren Haynes, Jimmy Herring. Yeah. And Jimmy, that first run that I did, Jimmy was out with widespread. And so I filled his role day one of the gig, I had no idea I was even doing that. There's so many layers to the history and all that. And uh, I kept hearing that night, oh man, like it's the cue with Kraz and da 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 da. When I'm walking out and I'm like, oh yeah, yeah. And then I'm like, what is the cue? And then I ask somebody and they're like, dude, you better like do some research. <laughs> and then I started listening because, like, like I said, I'd been listening to. Uh, one from the vault, Dick's picks, all this stuff. And yeah, then yeah. I started listening to The Q, which is filling friends with Jimmy and Warren, because that's the band. I was basically filling Jimmy's shoes, which is like one of the hardest things to do on the planet. Oh, and uh, 
I started listening because I had, I don't know if I'd really listened to Jimmy playing the dead. And so I downloaded every show that I could. And Jay Bao, my manager at the time, sent me like this Dropbox, Dropbox or something with like a million. And I just started, and it was unbelievable how he played that music. Yeah, um, he's. I mean, unreal. he's just such an incredible player to begin with. But like you said, hearing him in that context was like, oh man, I got work to do. Well, and, he uh, fell in I, love with it, you know. He right. did, it was just like Mayor and and all of us really. When you do the deep yeah. dive and you go. It's like a religious experience. You're like, oh my God. And every all these other fans are like, yeah, man. That's what we've been trying right. to tell you. Like, those right. those Phil shows were so jazzy and so like they would start off with these like 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 we were coming in seven minutes into a jam. You know what I mean? It was like you yeah. guys were jamming off stage and just went like, oh shit, we gotta be on stage and would just pick it up where you were. 10 seconds ago and it was just so wild to like hear it like you're saying like that incantation of those dead tunes were so unique yeah it, man uh, what, I, I love the subject of uh filling the shoes of people <laughs> who are filling yeah, the shoes you're, you know, <laughs> yeah that one i can't even like get wrap my head around i i, I just can't as far as the jerry thing because it's so you know it's also like his his approach and his whole thing, you know, it's like almost, it's hard to even conceptualize it. It's more like, uh, um, yeah, I don't know. I feel like you can't even touch that or I can't, you know what I mean? It's like, nor would he probably want you to, you know what I mean? He'd probably just be like, you do you man, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think, uh, you know, again, it's like that that you can't really do it. You just got to do your own thing with it. But I think you know Trey's done. Trey did a great job. John's doing an amazing job. I mean, you just you can't expect it to be filling the shoes. You kind of got to just like pay your respects to how they did it, how he does it, or how he created it. It, it he's the architect of the whole thing, essentially. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I think the music has become like a real book of sorts. You know, I think you know, Teal and I have talked about that. And the songs are just, they're timeless. So how people interpret it, I mean, Phil gets off on how how you change it and flip it upside down. And, you know, I've seen Schofield play with him and come turn it into like, like Mahavishnu meets whatever yeah. i mean those guys loved that music yeah. you know what i mean so like you know people like john Schofield, you know i'll I, i'd be surprised if jerry didn't listen to him you know what i mean oh um, yeah absolutely so absolutely. hearing hearing like the combinations like that it's really it's really cool thanks for listening we'll be right back with more on comes a time hey there osiris listeners i wanted to tell you about our friends over at smart wolf for more than 25 years, Smartwool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They are here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. One of the last times I was in San Francisco and I was doing the punchline right before the pandemic, I went and talked with Graham 
Lesh oh, for yeah, my yeah. podcast. And I drove, yeah. I went across the bridge and I went over to Terrapin Crossroads and Phil and Crosby and a whole bunch of guys are playing in the, the studio. Um, yeah. And there's all these heads outside, like in the parking lot. You could hear it through the wall and they're just twirling and just yeah. having such a good time. And I'm just like, this is just so incredible. Like the dead can't die. You know what I mean? Like yeah. no matter what. Yeah. And I don't think find it, it, man. I don't think it ever will, you know. No. You will see that there will always it'll always live on. I there was somebody that I was talking to you know, obviously not during the pandemic that was like, yeah, like there's, there was some statistic. There's always like 300 bands playing the dead music at all times. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like every town has a dead cover band playing at one moment or, you know what I mean? It's like so every true. Night. I went to <clears throat> one, one comedy would bring me to all town, you know, whatever, all these different yeah. towns. And after the shows would, the last show would end depending on when like last call was in that city. I would always look up like in the airport on the way to that city, like where's the closest toads place of that city right, and right. like who's playing. And I can't tell you how many times in Collar and Denver, I saw Steely Dead, which was like a Steely Dan, <laughs> Grateful wow. Dead. So it would be like help slip kid Charlemagne, like wow. Franklin's. I mean, just the in and out. like a Bodie, new one. Like, I've it, heard, it was I've heard like a lot. Of, yeah. King Solomon's marbles into like Bodhisattva into like a you know like it's it just such incredible like fl and it's like steely dead like you so know, we I have a wild. crazy like one of the most mystical things that ever happened to me in my friggin life it's so weird you say steely dead that tune crazy fingers you know it has these oh, changes I love that. Oh, yeah. right so you know yeah. they're not like you're not gonna just solo see that right yeah yeah the first time i learned this tune I knew every next change before it came up and I was like, wow, what is so, and I'm thinking, okay, I must've learned this. I must've heard this somewhere else at some point. Right. Yeah, and I'm yeah. mulling it over in my head because I'm trying to figure out like it was so weird. And then one day I was like, Oh, I hear Donald Fagan in my head singing this song. The, the whole Crazy. melody. I mean, I was like, yeah. oh, of course. So Steely Dan must have covered this. And then I that's how I knew it, you know? Wow. I looked all over the place for any version of Fagan doing that. I have never found it. I don't think he did it. I, I haven't. I, I've, I'm, a, I'm a Steely Dead, Steely Dan freak, and I've never heard any of them doing any Grateful Dead. And, and, actually, no that's so... Donald Fagan does cover. I was going to mention this. My friend Connor Kennedy, who's an amazing musician, he's in the newest version of Steely Dan. He started out as in uh, the Night Flyers, which is Donald Fagan's band. Mm. And uh, I actually played a gig with Donald Fagan um, wow. and called him to like make sure I had the parts right, you know. Um, and uh, anyway, he he they they do uh, Shakedown Street. They do, yeah, and Fagan the new version, it. the new Steely Dan, yeah. So of course I had oh, to YouTube wow. it. It's on YouTube. I have to check that uh, out. He, Thank can God. Can you text I him? Can you text him or email him and ask him if he ever covered Crazy Fingers? Because it would out. really help me know that I'm not crazy. I will <laughs> absolutely find out. I know he'll know because Connor's like a huge deadhead and plays yeah. with with Fagan. So any wow. Grateful yeah. Dead connection to Steely Dan, he, I'm, I'm. Guarantee oh, he's got it. Uh, for for years now. I mean, this is like f five years ago we started, and yeah. I've been like, 
it was such a huge thing to hear his voice. And I was like, oh, well, that's it. It's not, yeah, you know, yeah. it's not, oh, crazy. That's so you're not great. crazy, you know? And then I couldn't find it. I was like, that was weird, man. But yeah, that must have been super cool, man. Uh, Donald Fagan, I've, someone gave me a tour of the studio where they cut Asia. And I oh, sat yeah. at the board that's and listened to that song really? on the board where they cut. And I just started crying. <clears throat> That music. That was a, that's a huge thing for me that album what was that like like do it get dude we played game? so the band was will lee on bass steve gadd on drums um and it was like the most killing band ever and we did asia um and so, which was like insane um and then we did uh oh the one where i had to learn the crazy uh uh Reeling in the years. Reeling in the years. We'd reeling in the years. And I was so nervous to play the guitar right, you know, because it starts with that thing, the lick in the beginning. Yeah. And we rehearsed it. I, I played and I learned the whole uh, thing. And then, then Larry Campbell was playing the harmony guitar part. And then I learned, like, I thought I was so slick. I was like, I learned the whole beginning part of the solo and then just took my own solo from there, you know? But I, I was like, how can you play this song without, yeah. like, the iconic solo? And I nailed the intro, I swear to you, 90 times in a row. And, of course, the time he comes up <laughs> for rehearsal, I, like, completely fuck it up and you're like i'm like michael j oh. fox like your hand is disappearing it was no the- it was it was so and the band kept being like oh man like you got this bro you got this and like out of all the it was the love rocks show at the beacon where we had so many artists and like for some reason that one was the one because i grew up on that solo and that guitar part and the whole thing and uh of course he gets up for rehearsal and i fuck it up so bad like <laughs> I'm like no. <laughs> Luckily in the gig, I, I I got it. But um, but the rehearsal and he like stopped. He stopped the oh, rehearsal. No. He was like he was like actually it go. And I knew I knew I <laughs> fucked it up. And I knew exactly where I fucked it up. But I wasn't gonna be like no no no. I know I you know I just was like yes sir you know. Um, <laughs> and then uh, but yeah, learning learning that solo and then uh, and it was was I was a huge one. And that's actually not Larry Carlton. I always thought it was Larry Carlton. And now the the name is... No, Skunk Baxter played the harmony part. And the other one was a session guy. And I I can't believe it's escaping me right now. But they had 11 different guys play guitar (sighs) on, on that song and try to nail the solo. And it was like the 11th guy. And then Skunk Baxter played the harmony part because he plays that riff at the end with the and skunk baxter like learned a harmony part and played it over it um anyway i'm gonna get back to you on who the guy was because it's like it was some guy i'd never heard i'd never heard his name before have you ever seen that documentary hired guns is that the one where uh it's about like joel's drummer is like heavy yes yeah 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 yeah. but it's just so amazing that like when you hear about some of these studio guys like to get the call from steely dan was like you're going into the big leagues like you had to like that was the band that like if if you got called in to do like you better have your your you better be airtight when you walk in there so right right it's not surprising to hear they had 11 guitar players (laughs) yeah 
Carlton did play on it. He just was number number yeah. seven. <laughs> yeah, edit that. He actually did play on it. He's just got didn't make the cut, but he did play. It was Larry Carlton on Peg, um, yeah. and I wait and Kid Charlemagne too. I think, which I also is about an insane solo. I learned that solo too, thinking that that was in the set list because we were we only did three songs. No, we only did two, and we originally were going to do three. I think it was Kid Charlemagne was the other one, which you know is about Owsley. Yeah, Owsley you know that? Stanley. That's about the. <laughs> no, I did. Yeah, yeah. that's it. that's him. That's him and his uh, LSD empire. Yeah, which is yeah. crazy. I had no idea. I learned that like during that week of yeah. you know learning the. Steely Dan stuff. The, the way that I, so as a kid, my dad, like what he had a stacks and stacks and stacks of records, my uncles, and there were certain bands I loved and certain, I was just like, Steely Dan was one that, again, I just wasn't ready for. Yeah. And then I remember, I, I, I don't know if I ever told you this, Otiel, how I got to be into Steely Dan. I, I moved out like right after I graduated high school, got an apartment in New Haven and a buddy of mine came over and I had taken acid for like one of the first times. And everyone was leaving. And I'm like, I'm still tripping. Like, I can't, this can't end. Like, I'm alone and I'm freaking out. And my buddy goes, I got you. Before I leave, I'll be right back. And he runs down to his car, brings me up the Steely Dan box set and a Xanax. And he goes, you'll be fine. He goes, just take that and listen to this and you'll be fine. And from that moment on, I listened to all four uh, CDs from their box set, start to finish. And I was like, Steely Dan was imprinted on my soul as like, the greatest thing. I, I was like, thank you for the Xanax, but thank you for Steely Dan. And it's yeah, been one of my interesting favorites. combo, the Steely Dan box set and the Xanax. Uh, to get to, to, on top to take of the LSD. edge off the acid. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, well, we got a guy to name for that. You know how like a hippie speedball is like a, is like a bong hit and espresso? <laughs> yeah. Like the, the come down Steely combo Dan or something is the Steely Dan Xanax combo. The warm blanket. The warm, <laughs> the warm blanket. There it is. I think that's it. You just came up with it. That's, that's it. But you know what I've never understood is like there's so much, you know, and I, I don't know if everyone experiences this, but there's so much like un, like hate for Steely Dan in like the music world. Really? And I, yeah. So maybe it's just, I don't know. People, people love to hate on Steely Dan and I just don't get it. Like you musicians know, I, or fans? Yeah, musicians, like people, they think it's like cheesy and whatever, yeah, I, or like it's soft rock. And but like yeah, to yacht me, rock, it's it like, falls into that. Like it does, but it's such a perfect blend of like pop songwriting and like amazing musicianship. It's like I don't know, I, I don't get it. I don't get it. I think All Frank I Zappa. Say- Frank Zappa called them downer surrealism. Oh, so maybe he like started it. it. Maybe Zappa was the first guy to oh, spread I, that. And listen to the horn arrangements on Asia. That's it. Oh, like dude. The, the chords and the movements of the horns. I'm just like, I don't know, man. If you could hate that. I, I, I remember like when I came home with that record and the sun shining through the window of the music room and like the album cover and all that, just the sound of those horns. I was just really i mean aside from you know gad and anthony jackson whoever like yeah. bad asses were on that record yeah aside from all that it was the the texture of it oh yeah you know what i mean just I like mean, well also they were at a time where recording was changing you know what i mean like there was they had just 
you know, I, I'm not going to say the exact technical things that were happening record by record, but like they were utilizing, you know, they were like hi-fi records. They were, they were yeah. mixed in stereo. They were using these multi-track tape machines. They were like, you know, doing this crazy, amazing production. Um, we're looking back at it. It's like really clean for that era, but it was like amazing. It's amazing. what they so were, good. the production. Um, I don't, there is, there's actually a documentary, I think I'm making Asia. I haven't seen it in a really long time, but they talk about how they were creating drum loops by sending tape around the room and they were experimenting with all these new technologies and, I mean, I, I consider that stuff amazing and genius. And it's like this combination of like musicianship arrangement and like technology. And yeah, it's, it's pretty mean, yeah. epic, man. And that, that, that song Asia, like one of the coolest musical experiences of my life was we had like an eight piece horn section, that band and Steve Gadd, the, the drummer from the record, um, playing that song with Fagan and the outro Gadd, Gad, like I almost like couldn't play because I was like watching Gad play the drum solo over those uh, hits. You know the hits at the end of that song. Oh uh, my god! Uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah. <laughs> they yeah. are. They are absolutely such an. I feel underrated in in the in the grand scheme of things when it comes to musicians. Love them. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. It's like that comics comic type thing that people yeah. say sometimes where it's like real musicians right. love Steely Dan, but like, yeah, I yeah. think maybe with like, you know, maybe with Michael McDonald singing sometimes a little bit, maybe it gave yeah. it a little bit of like that kind of soft rock feel how I could see some people would yeah. say that, but I think it's just, I, mean, I don't know. I, I mean, Fez, Michael McDonald's Green also Aarons. one of my favorite singers. So He's phenomenal. I don't know. Yeah. I fall on that. I don't, I, I don't know. I love everything that they, yeah, it's just, I like unreal. his 80s shit. I like everything. Michael McDonald. That dude is a, a beast. I know I'm becoming I'm like, much, much less, uh, musically bigoted the older I get because, yeah, you know, my kids listen to stuff that I would never have listened to. So yeah. like I know a lot more about Justin Timberlake and Will I Am and stuff that I would never ever yep. know, you know. And some of it like so now I I just take everything kind of as it comes and it made me like get a new appreciation for like old you know some old disco shit that used to be yeah. out, you know, in uh in the yeah, 70s you know, or whatever. I just everything up. I actually just watched the Bee Gees documentary. Have you guys seen that? Yeah. No, no I I've obviously yeah. had a lot of time on my hands in quarantine. I'm like, I'm, <laughs> oh, you see this movie? You see that movie? Um, that one's really good, though. And it actually talks about how they got kind of unfairly canceled. It was like the first version of cancel culture. Um, and people burned their records. Like, well, it was really that there was like a moment where disco, people hated disco so disco much. Disco sucks. Remember the disco yeah, but it ended. Yeah, it's yeah, and then they actually had this demonstration in Wrigley Field where they like burned and broke all the <laughs> disco records of the era, and the Bee Gees kind of became like the hate, you know, the one that where they hated the most. And you actually, and not that I'm like the biggest Bee Gees fan, but when you watch the documentary of like what they were doing, and like they were like real songwriters. Like how deep, yeah. you, how deep is your love? Like. Psh, 
That's yeah. an incredible song. Look, those chord changes and the song. I mean, the of course, like the like- production and his voice or whatever gives it a certain thing. Um, but after Saturday Night Live, they were like too big. It was like one of those yeah. things where when something gets too big, people have to hate on it. There's like no option. They were like how know? Nirvana was to grunge, sort of. Like right. They just became and like so, the Elvis. Yeah. Right. And I bet Steely Dan maybe had a little of that because they had a lot of hit records. And, and they never know. toured. Like for a while, they stopped playing live for like right. a good chunk of their career. They were just a studio band. Right. Which I was surprised right. to hear. I, I, I was surprised they didn't play more like just unannounced club shows in the city. You know yeah. what I mean? Or whatever. Like they're, they're, they're just too. Maybe they just felt like they couldn't recreate what they did in the studio. You know? Yeah, they had so many musicians coming in and out that I'm sure it was hard to like create that live. You know, I'm just happy I got to catch them live. You know, with Becker at the Beacon when they did yeah. that run, and I mean, every year I would go see. I'll tell you one of the most amazing nights, a New York City night. It can only happen in New York. I'm doing stand-up comedy on Friday night. I have a couple shows at Stand Up New York, which is 78th and Broadway, and yeah. I go do an early set. I go, I do a second set and then I run over to the beacon, literally run to the beacon, catch Steely Dan, do uh, Royal Scam start to finish. Wow. Leave the Steely Dan show, go back to stand up New York and do a late set. So I got to do three <laughs> sets, got to see an entire Steely Dan concert and then drive back to my apartment in Queens. And I'm like, this is it. Like I made it. I don't think there's anything yeah. better than this. Like I got to, like, it was just such an unbelievable night. And it's one of those kind of only in New York things. Yeah. Well, that, that was, out, that's know? the one thing. And I'm not even going to say I miss New York because I don't want to live there probably ever again. But Amen. I look yeah. forward to going there and having nights like that. You know, I, I, I miss that where like you could bounce around to three, four things yeah. and, and like, all of them be at the best of the best. Like you could see, you know, go to the cellar and like, see like who, you know, Mark Marin jump up or like, I've been there when Chappelle jumps up, um, yeah. go to the blue note around the corner, you know, see Sonny Rollins and then like go to the beacon and see like all my brothers, like that could be a night that it probably was a night. <laughs> that, that is nights. I mean, New that's, York. I mean, working at the cellar, I'd be like walking into, I, I perform there all the time and Thundercats across the street. Or yeah, Bob yeah. Weir's across the street. And I'm like, yeah. oh, there was like two or three nights where Bob and the Wolf Bros did like shows at Blue Note. Blue Note, I remember that, yeah. And I'm across the street and I, I'm working and I'm happy yeah. to be working, but also Bob Weir's across the street. And I'm like, son yeah. of a bitch. Like, you know, it's just that double-edged <laughs> butter knife of, you know, making it work. But yeah. It's, it's kind of crazy how that little area of New York City like oh, is just... Though you know, and it's such a shitty little place, but it's amazing at the same time. <laughs> I mean, Cafe Wa was where Jimi Hendrix got discovered and his whole life changed. The reason yep. he went to London, Chaz Chandler saw him in Cafe Wa playing some random jam session, um, which is like right around the corner there. Um, it's, yeah, it's two steps away. Yeah, yeah, that was those. I had so many nights hanging out down there, Village Underground, Groove, Blue Note, uh. The yeah. crappy little the, mamoons was like I ate way too many mamoons falafels, but uh, I always I actually want to ask Mike a question if that's all right if you don't mind me flipping Please. the flipping yeah. the tables just because I'm so curious about like the comedy scene and kind of like the parallels of like trying to come up in this like competitive nature. I mean I know that like 
comedians are are I are I mean what one of the things I've always wanted to hang at that table at the cellar where all the comedians are hanging out you know yeah, what I mean and like yeah, totally. and like I there's like no better hang than with like a bunch of comedians but I'm curious like a little bit of like coming up in that scene what it's like to have to compete against each other because I always think like okay when we're musicians we're competing but we're also like collaborating and we're also in bands together you know, yeah, but like when yeah. you're a comedian, you're like a solo, you go on stage by yourself, yeah. you know? So I, I don't know. I'm just kind of curious about the competition, like coming up in New York as a comedian. Oh, well, I mean, I think that one of the things that, and I can really only speak for myself, but I think that, uh, the offstage hang is just as important as how funny you are and how deliver, how much you deliver. Like if you are right. a killer, but you're a piece of shit. <laughs> it's hard to like, you're going to have that, you know, against you. So it's, it's, I would say that, um, the goal was always to work at the cellar. Um, yeah. and, and you get recommended there and you do an audition set on a Friday night, you do five minutes and it's the scary, I'm, you know, I'm getting kind of worked up thinking about it cause it's been so long since I've done it. But I, it, it was for me, Dave Attell, Okerson, you know, some of these guys that like, um, I look up to and respect so much liked me and they right. f saw that I had the work ethic and they saw that they could, um, you know, trustfully recommend me or bring me on the road and I wouldn't ruin it. <laughs> I wouldn't, right. you know, try to chase waitresses around or, you know, skip out on bills or buy shots for the whole room or whatever. And I think that it was more of kind of just, if you're there, cause you, need to be there, you know, uh, right. Right. <laughs> if you, if that, that, that people could tell that I think real recognizes real a lot with comedy. And I, I think that if you are sacrificing a ton and if you're laying it all out there and you're not scared to bomb because you're growing, you're, f you seem to attract those folks that right. will help and we'll see, you know, your work ethic and your, your just love of the game. Right. And that was the fun stuff at the table. You know what I mean? Like sitting there kind of, uh, the table would filter itself out. You know what right. I mean? Like right. the table at the cellar is like, if there were people who would come by and kind of, you know, talk louder than everybody and pat themselves on the back and kind of put people down without like it being in love. Like it was kind of like, well, all right, well, yeah, the, you won't be here. You won't be here much longer. <laughs> There's a certain amount of like vulnerability and, and humility and all that and ball breaking and loving every minute of it. Yeah. But the, it's the, almost like the upstairs at the Brooklyn bowl. There'd be like four, it'd be like me, O'Teal, Kofi, my brother, like the Evans brothers. We all like talking, blah, 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 blah. then someone would like open the door and look in. We'd all be like, just stop and like, who's that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Just but praying never, they don't ruin the vibe. I, well, right, yeah, right, that's right. exactly right, you know? And, and it's funny that you said like, so that room turned into yeah. Village Underground became like kind of, you know, there was the McDougal room and then we would do shows on the weekends at the WAH which some people right. didn't really like to do, but I loved them because it's like right. you said earlier, just being in that room where so many important things happened in that room musically. I'm honored right. to even be on that same planks of wood right. and I'm telling my dumb jokes, you know? And, um, you know, around the corner, there's a couple other rooms and, and one of the rooms we had was the Fat Black Pussycat, which is the bar above oh. 
I know it you. way too well. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> way do, too do, well. Yeah. Oteil came and watched me do run like an hour of material right before the pandemic started when he was in town for the brothers. And but that we would have an, a night called New Joke Night. Right. And essentially what it was was it was an open mic for comics who were past at the cellar. So it was kind yeah. of us giving us permission to fail. And we would go up with five minutes or whatever of like just premises, thoughts written down. And you would just eat shit over and over and over. But we loved it and the crowd loved it because they were there to support us with, you know. I remember times going up and being so nervous with just my one or two ideas that weren't really ready. And I'd look up in the stairs and there's Chappelle. And yeah. he's ready to just go on with a pack of cigarettes and like a half a pint glass of tequila or whatever. And he would be up there for like two and a half, three hours. No material. Yeah. And just go. And then you see other yeah. comics start filing in and sitting on the stairs or sitting up in the balcony to like just watch. And that yeah. was the beautiful part of being in that, of being in that circuit. I talk about it like it's past tense now because of the pandemic, yeah. but being able to uh, learn and just watch and appreciate other people's, you know, watch Colin Quinn just slaughter a room and then kind of have to follow it. And, you know, but sitting there watching like a Chappelle and everybody from elder comics to brand new people to whatever, just funneling in and watching them just think verbally for two and a half, three hours. Yeah. Such an honor. And it's like that you walk away going like, like Schofield, like I quit. <laughs> I can never, right. do, I can never do what he does. But then it's, you know, it, it was, it's competitive and you kind of have to not think so much about it's that whole keeping your eyes on your own paper thing for sure because who's got management that can get them to do this late night set or who's got you know this person's ear or who's done this room and who can help you get that room and how can you help them get this room and so i i, I think it was just i tried to do it as like just as genuine as i could and it helped right right you know i mean it right it, to be able to perform with you know, to have Dave Attell ask me to go do stuff on the road, like I already kind of feel like the rest is just gravy. You know what I and mean? And did you and do you enjoy being on the road? Is that I don't, you know as a as a I, comedian? Uh, I, this has given me time to think about it. Uh, the loneliness I can't stand um, right. because I'm I just you know I'm glad I got a lot of my partying. I, most of my partying out before I started regularly touring and stuff, but uh, being alone in hotels all day and then going and working an hour a night and then going back to the room, it's it's cripplingly depressing, yeah, you know? Yeah. Um, I'm married. And I mean, I, I went you know, through that even with band members, so I can imagine like doing it alone. We've talked about that quite Yeah, it's awful. Yeah. I mean, there are some gigs where – you know, the summer before the pandemic, yeah, so 18 or 19, you know, the seller had a room in Vegas. So you go out and do seven, eight nights and you're in a hotel room in Vegas and, and yeah, there's the other comics that are there, but sometimes you're not like the closest with them or whatever. And yeah. you just go work 40 minutes a night. Yeah. What the hell am I going to do in Vegas for a week by my, you know what I mean? It's like 120 yeah. degrees you don't like gambling. And, if you don't like gambling or get, you know, but then also you I'd go right from that gig to another week in Atlantic city by myself. And then 
a weekend on the road in a mall in Minnesota. And, 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 and it's just so much time alone that when like, you just start to lose track of who the hell you even are. And then, yeah. you know, so that's why I love the city more because you can go do great rooms like Gotham and the cellar and stand up New York and New York comedy club and hit all of them and go sleep in your own bed, you know? Um, right, right. So I think coming out of this, I don't, I don't know if I'll ever really hit the road like I did. Cause it was incessant and, the, and, and looking at the calendar, the, the only dates I could see were the empty ones. You know what I mean? Like right, criticizing right. myself, but it's, it's, I'm, I'm honored to have done what I ha- have done and, uh, worked with who I have worked with. And it's, uh, it, it's an amazing comedy, such a, that room in that neighborhood and the history and kind of getting off the train at West Forth and walking up the stairs and you come up and it's oh, yeah. um, incredible. Some of the best basketball that's being played in the world is being played right there, right there yeah. at the corner. And then the best jazz that's going to be played in the world that night is at Blue Note and the best comics yeah. are, you know, Ray Romano's getting I mean, his new we hour in, set. And, I mean, it's just amazing. I had, I mean, I've played the Blue Note hunt maybe hundreds of times. Cause I, you know, years ago we'd start doing like, three, four night runs there. And, uh, I do, I was doing before the pandemic, like twice a year, I do a run there. Even when I moved back, moved to LA and that was always the coolest hang afterwards going to the pussycat. And there'd be like musicians, comics, everybody hanging out. And it was like, it was just exciting, man. Like that definitely makes me miss New York specifically like those, those hangs. Um, and it's such a, it's crazy because that place has been that epicenter since the sixties, you know, that's where Dylan hung out. And obviously we talked about Hendrix. It's so cool how some of those places are still standing, you know, where, where it's like that. I really hope that, that, that those places don't close down. You know, I know the blue notes struggling, but it's gonna, I think it's going to stay open, but that's going to be interesting to see after all this, like how things evolve and what happens. I mean, I'm thankful that like podcasting and doing a lot of the other things we're doing. And for me, I love being home. I've never like, I'm way, I'm so much happier being at home um, and creating in my studio. I do miss playing uh, gigs and I am excited to get back to that. I mean, obviously if I could combine like, okay, just play in California all the time, that would be ideal Mm -hmm. for me. Um, But yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how things uh, come back and and change after, after this. I think you'll be different. You'll feel different too. I'm interested to see how much, we change when it comes back because sure. you just had a kid. Oh yeah. So, you know, like for me, even though it's difficult right now at the moment, but like being, having all this time with Jess and Nigel and Kavi is just, I mean, he, he just lost his first tooth, you know, all yeah. that stuff is so corny to people, but you know, dad moments that you wouldn't almost assuredly miss, uh, almost surely miss if you're on the road all the yeah, time definitely. Definitely. i've caught so many of his first i pulled his yeah, first yeah. tooth out he lost his second one yesterday yeah so I, I think i i know it's got to be uh i'm sure the timing was good, that's oh, for me i mean i'm you. almost i almost feel guilty at like how <laughs> to how good 2020 was to me because 
you know, obviously I would never wish any of these situations on the world or anyone, but, sure. um, I've been very fortunate, you know, and this, uh, my, my, my son has like just started eating like actual like food, you yeah. know, which is like, we're calling dad, we're calling grandpa and oh my God, oatmeal. <laughs> and he's like, Wah! you know, those like little <laughs> things, these little things are like bigger than the biggest gig, you know what I mean? In a lot of ways. So I'm, um. Yeah, I feel fortunate that the timing for me on all of that, and, and then also creatively being able to, I, you know, I made a, an album in my in my studio during the time where I really got to like hone some different skills and and you try to like evolve as a musician a little bit or as a songwriter at least, and you know, obviously doing the podcast. I think that's a lot. A lot of people are finding new skills or, or even like hobbies or, or like, or, or other like wellness, you know, I yeah. know you've been super into biking now, Teal, and yeah. some people are like getting, I'll get more into yoga. And, um, I think the, the, the slowdown has, is going to have a lot of positive effects on a lot of people. Yeah. I learned how to split wood. Nice. I'm very happy about that. Yeah. Nice. I'm pretty, that's a, that's a, I'm hoping, I'm hoping I won't need that uh, uh where know. you live no but it's it's you know I, I, th there's a lot of thought about it and i've had talks with other comics and other music fans and stuff that it's like i think i miss i i've been able to perform a little bit outdoors and stuff you know like yeah. drive-ins and and things like that but um i'm excited to just be in the crowd for a concert Again, like yeah. that to me is the thing. Live music. Look, I love comedy. I do comedy. Comedy is like the thing that, that, you know, I feel is the most important thing that comes out of me. But I uh, need music. Like I really genuinely, I'll, I'll be pushed in a wheelchair to concerts when the time comes. <laughs> you know what I right. mean? And I, I just, the, being there with the collective, like, like sigh when the lights go down and the roar when the band hits the stage and the first notes it's just gonna be i mean people's yeah. heads are gonna explode you know like i just can't wait i'm well, looking I forward think... to that first dead and company show again that's for sure yeah yeah <laughs> i am too actually well man i got i came to the hollywood bowl uh whenever that what well, the last one was and i had so much fun man like I haven't had that much fun in so long. It was just like, and I love that venue too. But I don't know for some reason that particular night might have been the the goo. <laughs> but uh, but man, uh, that was just like uh, I haven't been able because also I don't get to like go to a lot of shows. It's usually like at a festival, and I've oh I gotta like run back. I gotta watch an hour, or I can watch a little bit. Um, but that was one of the best shows. I, and just seeing so many people too, that the, and I, I know we, we keep circling back to the dead. It's like inescapable, but, uh, fight the, it. <laughs> uh, the community of people that I hadn't seen in so long. And yeah, that I was thinking about that the other day and like, I, I can't wait to get, get back to that. And also the festivals that we do and lock in and all that stuff. I think I've, the appreciation for all of that has, has grown um, and the time at home for sure. Even though I love being home, I will appreciate those those moments a lot. Man, I'm so glad you I'm so glad today, you came. Man. Your yeah, podcast so is incredible, and 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 not that anybody that's listening to our podcast probably they already know it, but for those that haven't, can you tell them a little bit about what it is? 
Yeah, I mean, I it evolved from I used to do like a guest little show on Sirius XM and where I would play music and I started having people call in and then um I started, you know, I think Pretty Lights and and Derek Trucks and Warren Haynes all at some point called in Robert Randolph. And uh, I just like enjoyed, I mean, it's really like when we're on the road and we're at lock-in, some of my favorite parts are like me and O'Teal like backstage just cutting it up and like talking. And I always thought that was an interesting uh, part of the whole, of of being a musician was beyond... um, beyond just the music was like the hang and the personalities, the Colonel Bruce's, you know what I mean? It's like, I wish I'd had the podcast when Colonel was alive. Oh my God. Uh, but, uh, there was like, I just, um, you know, I love talking to my friends and I think what happened was I already had the concept to do a podcast years ago and I did a couple episodes. I did a couple for relics. And then when, uh, the pandemic hit, I was like, well, now I'm home. So now's the time. The initial idea before was to also have a performance element, like where they do it in my studio and we perform together, we do a song and I've done a couple like that. Um, before things shut down, I actually did start recording it before the pandemic, but, uh, once the once uh, COVID hit, it was like, okay, let me just start calling people. And it, it really also, in a weird way, worked out that everybody was home. You know what I mean? So, like, yeah. you know, Dave Matthews is a rare, is not usually just sitting at home, like, I wonder if I could talk to Kras, you know? So, but it was like, I was like, hey, man, you know, I know you're home. <laughs> I know you're home, man. Oh, that's so, amazing. So, uh, just started getting friends on and it, and it kind of just became more than I really expected. I thought it was going to be just, uh, as you guys know, it's like, you know, it turns into something and, and becomes, it's become something that I really cherish as a, as a, um, a source of like education for myself too. I've learned, I learned so much from everybody and it's just a nice like way to get together and have fun with my friends like weekly or whatever like since we're all just like locked up in our <laughs> in our houses um but yeah I, like i said it's just been uh it's kind of evolving and i've been like learning how to try to make it more interesting as it goes and i'm trying to like now expand and have like more you know people from outside the our music community um on there um i love how you guys are really broad in the spectrum and and uh and your guests are really, really amazing on your show. So that's been kind of inspiring too. Um, so yeah, I don't, I, it's just been, it's been something that I've, it's like, it was kind of like a, a selfish endeavor as like a way to, to kind of an outlet for me. And, uh, but I get so many messages now about how people have been listening and inspired by different episodes. And so it's, I, I'm really, I'm very thankful for for that and like um i think having the technology that we have in 2020 like imagine if this pandemic happened in like 1994 you know we i think we would be a lot more depressed you know a lot of people um, would be a lot of people would be mailing maxell xl2 tapes to each other and oh, uh, yes, doing their tape trading hey man tell so, me about, about your new record <laughs> Oh yeah. So I made a record during quarantine. Um, the first, so uh, a guy named Otis McDonald 
who's an incredible musician and producer. Um, we met through Adam Deitch, and he was putting together a compilation uh, for a charity called Song Aid that he had helped start. And we made, actually, this goes back to the Dylan thing, is that uh, the song Man in Me had come on while I was somewhere. This is pre-pandemic. And I completely like, you know, when you're listening to music and someone's talking to you and then you just have no idea what they're talking about. And you're just like, it was like somewhere in a cafe and you're just like, Oh, now I'm not listening to you anymore. That song. Oh my God. (laughs) And then I listened to that song so many times. And then I like just started playing it and I was like, Oh man, it's like, and that was right around when my wife got pregnant. So there was like so many different pieces to that song and like finding the person for me and, Initially, I was like, okay, so he hit me up. Hey, man, we're doing this this compilation, and people are doing covers and stuff. And I was like, oh, man, I'd love to do Man in Me. So I cut like this little demo kind of thing of it, sent it to him. And I was like, why don't you add some drums? And he not only added drums, he added keys and mixed it and added background vocals. And we did it all virtual. And I was like so blown away with the product. And then I, then once I got it back, I was like, oh man, now I'm going to redo my vocal and I'm going to do my <laughs> guitar. And I was like guitar manies and I like did all this stuff. <laughs> so that track is out. Actually, you can find that track on Spotify. Eric Krasno, the man in me, I think is the correct title. But I just was like, man, I love this dude. I love working with this dude. Maybe this is a way. Because initially I was like going to record like an acoustic thing just in my studio that was a little more broken down. But I was like, man, this dude's a great drummer. He's a great mixer. So I started sending him a bunch of other ideas and he started doing the same thing. And so the rest of the album is all original songs, some of which I had written previous. And then I just got inspired and just started writing um, and as you, if you, you, you can, you can hear in the album, a lot of it is like the journey of becoming a dad and all these different nice. things. But, um, I, I think it's the best thing that I've done personally, I think for a lot of reasons, but I, I think one of the reasons is I got to spend real time putting it together. You know, like most of the record, I was like in my sweatpants and like no shoes on. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? I got to like sit there. And That's like, the way to work. Yeah. yeah you know, and it's so many times in the past. It was like, okay, you got three days in the studio. You got to cut 17 tracks and this dude has to go and this dude's leaving tomorrow. And this was like me just doing my parts. And, and Otis said he has a studio in San Francisco and both of us had some time on our hands to, to work on this and we were really excited about it. So it became this um, really cool friendship too, where like when we just started going back and forth and he has a one-year-old son. It was like one of those things where the timing was just like epic because he has all these skills that I want to learn and I think some vice versa, where he's like a great mix engineer. He can play piano. He's a great drummer. He plays everything he can sing. And I was kind of doing the similar thing in my studio, but he showed me so many studio tricks and and things. And we just started doing this virtual, uh, these virtual sessions essentially. And then we eventually found this this program called Pedal, where we can do it in real time over our through our studio gear. So I can actually hear in real time. So we mixed the entire album and did overdubs using in a uh, a, a new technology called Pedal. Wow. Where we're actually going through our computer in real time. It's kind of insane. 
Um, oh. And it's great because it's almost better. I did go up to his studio before things got really bad, like in like the lull where I went up to his yeah. studio in San Francisco. The other great thing is he has um, a ro- the room at Hyde Street Studios, which used to be Wally Hyder. And that's where American Beauty was recorded. It's where Herbie Thrust was recorded. Um, it's where Tupac recorded a lot of stuff. So many epic albums. So when I went up there to like do some overdubs and stuff, I'm in this room just like whole <laughs> the mojo in this room is like so all the all the stuff he did, um, he did in that room and then a lot of the rest of my tracks mostly were done in, in my studio. But uh yeah, and like I said, he he had just had a son, you know, when we first linked up or his son was like a year old. And I'm having a son, you know, on the way. Yeah. And like, it he, it was just this kind of like, how did I not know you before type of thing. And we talk every day and we're, we make like, we've made so much music. Um, and since like April, I mean, the album is just the first like 10 tracks. We already have like tons of other tracks. So, so um, definitely feel fortunate um, for that connection. And then just, you know, for the time that I've been able to kind of spend on it. I mean, it's not even, it's funny because it's actually not that I spent a zillion hours doing everything. It was more that without the pressure, you know, you're not rushed. You're not like, Oh, okay. Got to do this solo just one time. And eventually the funny thing is once you take the pressure away, you only need one take. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? Then I was like, Oh, it feels good. And then I was like, Oh wow. And then I got really into, um, taking, I took a cue from the Allman Brothers, but it sounds very different. But like, I do a lot of guitar mini. Like, um, my last record, I was like, okay, I'm gonna make a record that's really based on the songs, but I didn't really make a lot of room for the guitar playing, you know, which is like, mm, yeah, so this Are you time, talking about I, telescope, yeah, yeah, Love so that. like, there's guitar in it, but not a lot of like extended like guitar melody solos and this one I still have like the it's still more pop in the way of telescope but um you know I think that I still think that the Allman Brothers are one of the best bands of all time of like creating these like memorable I I, I'm gonna call them pop songs because they're on the radio and uh, but it's like it's soul it's blues but these incredible hooks with these like guitar like beautiful guitar harmonies and stuff. I think my stuff's maybe a little more like minor, you know, than, than the, but like I, I um, started doing this thing where I would play a solo and then, and then like you'll hear on the man in me song was the first one where I did it. And then I just went back and started harmonizing certain parts. Um, And then what in turn, it made the rest of my solos on the records like slower and more melodic because I was thinking, I want to play, I wasn't sitting out and writing anything out or arranging it, but I was like, I want to be able to harmonize this later. So what it made me do was make my solos like more melodic and a little bit slower and a little bit more memorable. Um, And then some of them I didn't even harmonize. I was like, oh, this sounds great like this. But it was that concept of like thinking in that way. Like I want to think about that this solo is going to be played by me and I'm going to do in the studio. I'll double it or harmonize it. But live, I'm going to have this dude with me. So I was kind of like imagine my guitar player that plays with me, Danny Mayer. I kind of would always like imagine him there with me. (laughs) It sounds kind of weird, but I'm like, I'm going to play something that someone can play with me. 
you know? So, uh, cool. so that there's a theme of that throughout the record that the solos have this like arc and, and I harmonize a lot of them. Uh, along with like the singing, I think got a little better because um, I've been kind of working on that and figuring out where my range is, trying to expand my range, but also trying to like write yeah. for my voice, which was something I didn't really know how to do before. <laughs> Me uh, too. I have an easier yeah. time singing Jerry's tunes than mine. But you right. know, I was just writing like from a this is the melody or this is the whatever. It's like, yeah, but you got to sing it. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Exactly. You got to well, write written, for that too. I had always, I had come from like writing for other people, you know? Um, yeah. And, and then so, so figuring out where my voice like works, which is a pretty small range, but uh, I think it, you know, and I'm trying, it's getting a little bit, it's getting better. And I've took like my first like real vocal, like Zoom vocal lesson kind of recently. And like actually learning a little bit of technique has been, has been helpful. Yeah. And cause it's very different than guitar. I mean, it's like mm-hmm. in terms of, I mean, obviously the physicality of it, but one of the things I learned is like when I play guitar, uh, and I play like the notes that have the most feeling. I don't breathe at all. In fact, I like suffocate myself. Oh wow! <laughs> I like scrunch my face up and I go. Ugh. And when my <laughs> vocal teacher saw that, he was like, "Wait a second, hold on. We need to. First of all, breathing is all you got when you're singing. Because when I would sing yeah. and I'd hit like a note, it was always like, Ugh. you know, like like he's like, first if you're squinting." That means you're clenching up your throat and your neck. And and if you're like doing these scrunched out faces, so try, and I'd never thought about that. You know what I mean? And I'm sure like, you know, if you're an amazing singer, that maybe doesn't matter as much. But for me, I need every bit of air I can get. Yeah. Um, so that's been a, that was a huge game changer for me. It was like realizing I need to be relaxed when I'm mm-hmm. singing, especially when I'm singing higher notes. Because what happened when I was I trying to sing higher notes, I'd clench my whole throat up and they would go away, you know? Wow. So, I mean, if you watch like Alfreda, right? Like she's yeah. pretty much, right? I mean, she moves around, but you can tell she she's- She goes like this. Yeah, right, right. But you, she, but <laughs> you can up. tell she's freely moving around, you know? Like watching her sing- Dude. Like that, that's like some I quit. Those are some I quit moments. Yeah. <laughs> She's also a trained opera singer. That's right. Like, right. you know, the, this Philharmonic and then that Philharmonic. Yeah, yeah. She's a technician, man. When it comes, she's the one that told me, she was like, Oh, all this stuff about drink something warm. She was like, Oh right. no, no, no. She said, get you something that's with crushed ice in it. Oh yeah, yeah. I and I realized that. that I was like, that's true. Like people say, put your face in a hot pot when you have a congestion. I'm like, no. When you walk out in the cold, that's when your nose clears right up. Right. It shrinks your vocal cords up when you drink that. And she does. She says, I like it carbonated, like coke wow. and crushed ice. And she just interesting. Yeah, and then she can hit. She can hit the moon. Wow. It's so funny the things I I love just like learning so many of these things later in life and it just makes it fun. You know, you just embrace and you keep growing. It never stops. It never stops, man. I know. That's the crazy thing, man, is it literally never stops. Yeah, you can be you'll be can be a musician for two thousand years and still shedding eight hours a day. Yeah. 
I think about that with with, uh, kids too. Like, because I I know with Nigel, it's like every day in Kavi too, like you see some new development. But then I thought, well, you know, my parents, however however old they were, I guess in their 70s when me and Kofi were in our 40s, and then we came home with two Grammys. And it's like, wow, when Nigel's 40 something, he'll still be blowing my mind. He'll still be surprising. Like it literally never stops ever. It's true. (laughs) Awesome. Totally true. It's uh, that's a good thing. (laughs) Eric, thank you so much, man. Obviously you're going to come back. We have to do this again. Yeah, Um, man. I'd love to have, I've had O'Teal. I'd love to have both you guys on. I mean, O'Teal for a second time. I'd love to have you on my show too, but, um, yeah, man, I appreciate uh, you guys having me on, and I appreciate what you guys are doing, man. It's uh, been inspiring to listen to your guys, your guys' podcasts, and all the all the guests and everything. So, yeah, it's a it's a pleasure. Yes, ours is turning into the psychedelic mental health UFO podcast. Like yes, <laughs> dot, dot yes. edu. <laughs> I love all of that. So that's, that's perfect. <laughs> well, we love you, man, and uh, yeah. we love you, all the listeners out there. And uh, go check out everything, Kraz, everybody. Much appreciated, fellas. Peace. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.